know, guilt might work well for the Catholic Church, but it's not the right set of solutions for solving climate change. Welcome to the season four premiere of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. A few years ago, Hal Harvey, an acclaimed energy advisor, and Justin Gillis, an award-winning New York Times climate reporter, discussed the health of our planet over stakes. By the end of that dinner, they had decided to write a book together on the principles individuals can rely on to help save the planet. That book became The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. And over the course of the book, Hal and Justin provide readers with seven essential changes communities must enact to bring greenhouse gas emissions down to zero. In season three, I focused on discovering ideas around collective action and how climate leaders were working to drive that collective action. Season four is focused on how we measure. Today, Hal and Justin join the show and kick off season four to cover how society needs to call on, as opposed to call out, our leaders, communities, and governments to measure and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But before we jump into our conversation, I want to welcome you to Season 4 of The Net Zero Life. If you are new here, I recommend you start with episodes from Seasons 1, 2, or 3 to learn more about how I help you discover your role in making the world a more sustainable place by interviewing founders, authors, CEOs, executive directors, journalists, and a whole bunch of other leaders who are already working on transitioning our world towards net zero. And while I love all my episodes equally, a great starting point from Season 3 is Episode 31. The True Impact of Renewable Energy with Laura Zapata, CEO and co-founder of Clearloop. Or number 27, Discovering Your Inner Environmentalist with Mark Tursik, former CEO of The Nature Conservancy. But whether you just found us or you've been with us since season one, today we have a great show for you. Justin, Hal, and I cover the big fix in detail. And as always, I ask them to share their climate origin stories and their climate role models. Now, you know my list of climate role models because I invite them on the show. Often, I know of our guests through my work, through newsletters, through books, or other forms of written content. But of all places, I discovered Hal through YouTube. Hal's lecture on creating impactful energy policy solutions for Stanford Energy, which we'll link in the show notes, is a must-watch for anyone interested in working to drive climate action through policy. Hal is also a Stanford-trained engineer and the CEO of Energy Innovation. In case you haven't heard of Energy Innovation, they're a leading nonpartisan climate policy firm delivering research and analysis to help policymakers make informed choices. Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush both called on Hal to serve on national and international climate panels. While I had read some of Justin's work for the New York Times previously, in researching this show, I rediscovered my appreciation for his work on climate. Justin is an award-winning journalist with four decades of experience with major daily newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Miami Herald. As the lead reporter on climate science at the Times for nearly a decade, Justin won the John B. Oakes Award for Distinguished Environmental Journalism. As the lead reporter on climate science at the Times for nearly a decade, Justin won the John B. Oakes Award for Distinguished Environmental Journalism for a series of front-page articles exploring the basics of the climate crisis. Our theme for Season 4 is How You Measure Impact, and it's uniquely important to me given my professional focus in ESG and carbon accounting. This season, you'll hear from an incredible cohort of guests and no better place to start than with two climate experts with 50 years of combined efforts working to move the world closer to net zero. Hal, Justin, welcome to the show. Let's kick off by talking about 
both of your origin stories. And I think um, I will at certain times through, throughout the show call on either of you to make sure that our guests get comfortable with your voice. But I'd love to start with both of your whys. Uh, if there's a certain moment where you're thinking about climate and that lens changes, how that has evolved over time and your major influences. And so, Hal, if we can start with you, you seemingly have done it all in the world of climate, uh, starting with starting your own company, working at RMI, nonprofit executive director, policy influencer. If we go back in time to your engineering days at Stanford, when did you start thinking about energy? Was climate even in the vernacular there? And then how does building your own electric car come into the picture? And maybe if we can talk about the price of solar panels as well, how, like at that, that time, what did it cost then and how much it costs today? Great. Um, well, actually, my origin story begins well before Stanford. Um, when I was a kid, we didn't have a TV, so we listened to the radio. And it was the Vietnam War going on. So every day there would be a report of how many Americans were killed and how many Vietnamese were killed. Um, and one of the consequences of ending the war in Vietnam was the draft was abolished. However, when I was coming of age, Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, had reinstated so-called selective service. So I had to go down to the post office and register for the draft. And that's a moment you don't forget. And the reason we had to do that is because of unrest in the Middle East. Uh, there was 1973 um, oil embargoes that screwed up the US economy. And again, in I think it was 1977, another round. So Jimmy Carter created something called the Rapid Deployment Force, a huge set of military forces aimed at the Persian Gulf to protect, quote, our access to oil, unquote. So energy took on a, which I say, a very personal meaning to me. At the same time, I got a job designing and building solar homes when I was about 17, um, hubris outweighing intelligence, which is not uncommon for me. Um, and my brother and I built a quite beautiful house in Colorado, very cold country up in the mountains. Uh, and it never gets cold in a house, it's passively solar heated. Um, and we discovered that from an engineering perspective, it was pretty damn easy. You needed thermal mass, you needed good insulation, you needed proper orientation, you needed the right overhangs. And then you get a house that just keeps itself the right temperature year round. So why on the one hand were we sending kids to war or the threat of war, and on the other hand, failing to build buildings that didn't waste energy. What I did realize though, since it was so easy to build a solar home, technologically easy, but it wasn't getting done all the time, that took me into the realm of policy. And I've been stuck there ever since. Lost to explore. We'll come back to that, especially how you had all these engineering concepts at 17 before going to school. Justin, turning it over to you, you have had a story career in journalism, including three plus 10 year sprints, uh, stints or sprints. I don't know how you define them at Miami Herald, Washington Post, New York Times. Two places I thought we could explore to talk about your climate story are either your first climate writing assignment or the moment and scene when you decide to go from the Washington Post to the New York Times. Yeah, let me, I guess, go back a little bit earlier than that, even. So you're right, I had a sort of 35 year, you know, kind of classic newspaper reporting career of the sort that you probably couldn't have today coming out of journalism school, given how, you know, radical the changes in the news business have been. Uh, throughout that career, I was always interested in environmental topics and managed to dip into them 
sometimes, I mean, my job was often covering the city council or covering the county commission in whatever county I was working in, but I always managed to dip into environmental issues, you know, which uh, very much concern local government, right? We, this is an issue we should come back to that, you know, local governments have a huge influence over a lot of the decisions that get made. And um, so it was just a topic that always interested me. I could probably take you to the spot on the beach in Fort Lauderdale uh, where in about 1983 or 84, I think, um, a scientist first explained to me that the ocean was rising. I was down there to cover uh, beach erosion and the sort of goal that Fort Lauderdale had to dump a lot of new sand on their beach to widen it because the beach was disappearing. Uh, and it was really the first time I understood, wait a minute, the ocean is coming in on us here. And that really set off a kind of a lifelong interest in, uh, in, in climate. Um, I didn't decide to cover it, and this is the sort of second point you were alluding to. I didn't decide to get involved with it as a journalist until much later in my career. And um, uh, it was really a result of frustration. Uh, you know, for years and years, I kept watching the journalism of climate change, which I thought was pretty bad on the whole, and stuck in this framing of uh, giving climate deniers sort of half time to argue with scientists, which just struck me as nonsense and wrong. And uh, also, uh, I, I thought, I, I kept wondering about the public policy, like when is when are politicians going to wake up and take this thing seriously? And as time went on, I just got sort of madder and madder. And, and at a certain point, you know, it's an old saw in the newspaper business. If you complain about the coverage of something enough, they'll make you do it yourself. And so that is essentially what happened uh, is, you know, I decided I wanted to work on climate. At the time, the the Washington Post was sort of a shrinking newspaper. Jeff uh, Bezos hadn't bought it yet. And so I kind of decided, well, the, the New York Times is the only newspaper that's going to be ambitious enough to do this. And so uh, I went there first as an editor uh, for a few years and then switched to reporting. And so uh, when I switched to reporting, that was specifically to cover the science of climate change for the time. So that's my origin story. Did the New York Times, so it's been over 10 years since you joined the New York Times. Has it lived up to your expectations? And, you know, you called out earlier how journalism has changed so much. Um, and so then the New York Times is one of the most influential uh, newspapers out there, but also in terms of their other medias and forms of media for um, for getting messages across. And so I'm curious, one, did it live up to your expectations? And two, as that uh, as journalism has changed, are you seeing any other uh, climate journalism innovation? Well, when I started uh, working on this beat at the Times, there were only a couple of people doing um, climate science in any kind of serious way. Uh, now there's a team of sort of 20 plus. So uh, I take a sort of small degree of credit for helping the Times itself wake up to the story and the sort of, um, uh, and I do mean small there, but, but you know, I, I think I helped them see that this was, this was a big story. It wasn't going away. It's only going to get bigger. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons that I felt like I could leave the paper in 2017 as a full-time writer and work on this book with Howe was that the Times was now taking the story really seriously and was building a, a kind of an ever-expanding team. So the larger world of journalism, I would say, we're still not where we need to be, 
this is now a seriously covered topic in a handful of the major uh, national news organizations. It's still not very seriously covered in television. I, I think television, you know, just leaves a whole lot to be desired still. And even uh, on some TV channels or networks, we are still even stuck in this, you know, half time for climate scientists, half time for climate deniers framing. And so I feel like we've still got work to do, but I will claim overall that the journalism of climate change has gotten better in the last 10 years. No question about it. You hinted at two things that I think will set me up for success. One, you and Hal have been working together, at least as far as I know, you called out 2017, could be earlier. Can you tell me a bit how you two met and how you started working together and then why you decided to write this book? And well, for people who are wondering the book, um, we're going to talk all about that later coming on, but the big fix and helping individuals understand how they can help save the planet. Jason, why don't you take a shot at that? How and I met early on in my work on the beat. In fact, I was I was working as an editor at the Times, not a reporter, when we first met. And uh, you know, we interacted you know multiple times over the years. And I think what happened is uh, I was meeting a lot of people, and I was listening closely to the sort of arguments that people were making about how we go forward, what do we need to do, and. It just gradually became clear to me that Hal was making more sense than anybody else I was talking to. And uh, the reason he was making more sense is that his whole program of ideas is built around taking the public policy and the public institutions that already exist and turning them to this purpose of battling climate change. So Whereas I thought a lot of people that I met were kind of asking for the impossible, uh, you know, met a whole lot of economists saying the only way we can do this is a big carbon price, for example, a big price on fuels that would sort of raise the cost and therefore encourage people to uh, cut their consumption. And I knew that that had been tried for 30 years in the United States and had gone absolutely nowhere. And it is never going to happen in this country. And so the more I listened to how, the more I thought, this is the guy that's making sense here. And I would say the idea of writing a book for him, it was my idea. And it entered my head, I don't know, in the shower some Tuesday when it just kind of struck me. Uh, so many of the ideas out there are wrong about how to do this, you know, and this guy has good ideas. Uh why are those ideas not available in a in a sort of a book form? And I let that idea grow on me for like six months or so before I kind of broached it to Hal in a restaurant one day. Uh, where were we, Hal? We were in the we were in the villa in in Greenwich Village somewhere, eating lunch. Some uh, it was a steak joint. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> um, in the 30s, I think. Ironically, a steak joint. Uh, so yeah, you want to pick the story up from there? I and mean, did you think I was crazy at the time? Well, I knew it. So I uh, had always admired Justin because he made complicated, incredibly complicated stories clear, not simple, but clear. Um, and of course, I'm a New York Times devotee, and I'm happy to say my kids are as well. It's one of my successes. Um, and so Justin raised this idea during this lunch, and I committed to it before the lunch was over um, because it's just a great opportunity to work with one of the great writers of our time. But there's more to it than that, which is the essence of strategy is making clear choices and putting 
all your forces behind those choices. And climate change is such a big and such a complicated world that uh, a thousand feeble choices or misguided choices or subscale choices will not, will not serve. We have to find the biggest opportunities and push them very hard. And in order to do that, it actually takes some realignment of political forces around solutions, around tractable solutions, instead of, as Justin put it, theoretical but imp implausible ideas. So um, I saw that writing this book is a chance to make that argument. Let's talk about the book, The Big Fix, and then we'll go back. Uh, we'll, we'll go backwards a little bit and talk about first principles of climate journalism and, and climate policy because I have hundreds of questions that uh, to ask you there. The book does something that you know every author and policymaker and podcaster want to do, which is which is take this broad concept. Climate is a horizontal category that affects every industry vertical, right? Which which you call out in your book, and then narrow down that lens to a few basic principles. Something you two are both experts at. You frame the opportunity in seven practical steps. Why those seven? And then were there any topics or any principles that you wanted to include, but you had to leave out of the book? Well, why those seven is in some ways self-evident because each of the principal sectors that have to be refashioned lands in one of those seven. The last one of those seven is about future technologies that don't yet exist, but the rest is about what we can do today. At the end of the day, if you don't grapple with redesigning, replacing the physical stuff in our economy, you're not serious about climate change. It's not like getting a, a better digital read on emissions is going to change emissions. You actually have to go change the factory. Or if you have a building that uses vast amounts of natural gas to stay warm, you have to go change that building one way or the other, or you're not dealing with climate change. So there's a what I would call a physical imperative that drives the choices we made in our books. Awesome. Um, in terms of, Justin, I don't know if you want to add to that, but in terms of any concepts, so or maybe we'll peel that back. The, the seven practical or the six practical principles fall across the different verticals. Are there any verticals that you, you call out the grid as being kind of like the first step to electrify everything? Uh, it's a concept that we've talked about on the show here as well. For the ones after electrical, when we get a little bit more, I don't know if this is fair to say, but when we get a little bit more ethereal, how did you think about what to say as we have to do this, we should we should move from A to B, from fossil fuel to renewable energy versus we need to push innovation and discover what the realm of opportunities are? Yeah, I mean, we say seven steps, I guess, on the cover of the book. That's a bit of a marketing thing, of course. You know, I mean, people love lists. And so, you know, we're our, our book publisher is kind of taking advantage of that impulse, I suppose. Uh, we don't really mean them as uh, steps in the sense of steps on a ladder that have to be taken one after the other. Uh, in fact, we need to be doing all these things simultaneously, really. Uh, it is true that sort of the first step is the first logical step is clean up the electric grid because that's where we have the most immediate opportunity, right? We have the technology now to make a very serious um, cut in emissions in the grid. Uh, to some extent, this is already happening in the in the rich countries of the world. And cleaning up a lot of the other sectors depends on cleaning up the electric grid, right? Everybody can sort of now perceive that electric cars are going to be the future. Even the car companies will now tell you this at long last. Uh, and so 
we need to power those electric cars on a cleaned up grid or we're not getting as much out of that change as we uh, as we could. Uh, and so, uh, so, but nevertheless, uh, you know, one whole chapter is about, you know, the food and land use, for example, where uh, we need to be making serious progress on cutting emissions there. That needs to be happening now. Not, we don't need to, you know, what we don't need to do is kind of wait to clean up the electric grid and then move on to these other things. It's not quite like that, right? And, you know, to some extent, I mean, so the book is written for citizens and it's written to sort of help people figure out how they personally can um, help move the needle here. So for any given citizen, the right steps are going to depend to some extent on where you are, where you live, where you are in life, how much time you have. Uh, You know, I think you've probably figured out that in general, uh, we are down on the idea of sort of green consumers. We certainly don't think the green consumer is the answer to this problem. We think becoming a green citizen is more the answer to the problem. But uh, we call out places in the book where we think green consumerism matters and food is one of those, right? So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but uh, I mean, House Broadpoint, I think, is exactly right. I mean, we just took the economy apart into the sectors, and that's the plan of the book. It's not any more complicated than that. A hundred percent. And and in the food category in particular, one of the things I want to peel out, this idea of calling on versus calling out. And so the book does a little bit of both, where it's the calling on people to make better decisions. There is a little bit of calling out, though, as well, at least as I read it, um, you know, feel free to disagree, which is that calling out is you're doing, you're using fossil fuel, but you need to stop. And so both in terms of the book, but also with your life experiences, with all the history that you have, because not that you are old or anything, but you have loads of climate experience, right? How do you think about calling on and bringing people together versus calling out and asking people to make changes? I'm a calling on guy. I think, you know, guilt might work well for the Catholic church, but it's not the right set of solutions for solving climate change. And the word solutions is important. This is a deadly serious problem, but it's not a reason for despair. It's a reason for action. And there are opportunities to stave off the worst of climate change. They're shrinking, but every day we do nothing because there's a fixed carbon budget for all time and we're filling it up. But if you offer people zero carbon electricity and the price is similar and the reliability is as good or better, uh, they will take it, especially if they've lived downwind to a coal plant for quite a while. If you hector them for living near a coal plant, and tell them how horrible it is for them. That might be a good motivator, but it's not good for empowering people to get out there and do, their, do the right thing. So it's, this has to be about opportunity. This is an optimistic book. Justin, anything to add? Only that we are willing to call people out, and we do, uh, to a limited extent in the book. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think we're both pretty angry at the fossil companies, right? And the, you know, lies they've told and their uh, uh, decades of efforts to confuse the public. And, you know, they all now say, oh, we get it. And we're sort of, you know, trying to get lined up with the energy transition, but they're still contributing money to these politicians that go to Congress and lie about this problem. So uh, I don't really believe them when they say they've come around. And, you know, we do some of that in the book, but we don't really dwell on it because, um, you know, I guess how I both think 
the bigger problem is sort of the power of human inertia. So every day, you know, decisions are being made to perpetuate the fossil economy, right? Decisions that a lot of the public doesn't really understand. Your school board that may be meeting, you know, three, four miles from where you live is making decisions every year to buy new diesel-powered school buses. Why aren't citizens in their faces asking them why? Your county commission that may operate a fleet of, you know, in a big county, they may operate a fleet of three or 400 county-owned automobiles. They are making decisions every year to buy new gasoline-powered automobiles instead of using their purchasing power to go electric. There are all these inertial decisions getting made that need to be challenged. And I think Hal and I both share the philosophy that the right way to challenge them is to point to the alternatives and sort of get in there and make a political demand. But uh, I, I think it's basically right that sort of shaming people is, is, is generally counterproductive. You really want to sort of point the way is what you want to do. Yeah. You called out fossil fuel companies. We just spoken about them. I, you know, in my personal life, definitely fall into the non-confrontational part of the uh, part of the population. And so trying to think through, hey, you know, how can I support you in this shared goal is a great example. And I thought we could talk about the first principles of both climate journalism and climate policy in relation to the fossil fuel companies. In particular, because on this show and, and, and with my engineering background, I think that's kind of where I lens, but I've shied away from the apathy towards fossil fuel and, and people choose to do it however they they want. And, and part of that for me is understanding, you know, what are the actual steps, which your book calls out, how we move away from that industry. In terms of the anti-oil rhetoric in general, the the TED Countdown video uh, last year with Ben Van Buren and Chris James from um, Engine Number One, Ben Van Buren from CEO Shell, and Lauren McDonald, the Irish activist, we get a sense of the way the narrative seems to be going or the way that the communication seems to be going. And so from your perspective, is everyone on the right page? Justin, you kind of talked about it a little bit in your answer. Is there reframing that needs to happen to fix that inertia and that are there good people and bad people here? And then, you know, we can turn this into like, what can individuals do to make sure that narrative is encompassing all of the people together and pushing the agenda forward in terms of the climate crisis? I think in order to deal with climate, you have to pay attention to the raw physical facts, the tons that have to be abated. Anything that offers to be a solution and doesn't get at the tons and the millions and ultimately billions of tons is fundamentally not a solution. It's tinker toys. I was once sitting on an airplane flying across the country when flying in an airplane is the most carbon intensive thing you can do. And the woman next to me really wanted coffee but she refused it because she didn't want to use one of those little creamers. And it just was a screaming reminder of the lack of mathematics. I mean, here you are burning fossil fuel like nothing else on planet Earth, quite literally, and you're trying to save the world by not using one of those plastic creamers. It's insane. So we see this all the time in climate activism as well. You know, if you, if you think that stopping a pipeline stops burning oil, you haven't studied the way oil flows in the global economy. It might be a good thing to do for some political reason. It might resonate morally with you, but it didn't change climate change. So we've tried to find things that, are, that have zeros behind them, that are consequential. And then we've tried to understand who sets the decisions about those consequential items in our economy. 
and understand other things too. How do the prices go down? How fast does capital stock turnover? Get a pretty deep assessment, not a prejudice, but an assessment of the forces trying to protect the status quo. Where's their weak spot? And then go at it very hard. So this is not about being soft around the edges to point out the options that are available. This is about doing it with force and vigor and realism. And at the same time, understanding what are the most noxious elements of the current supply. So one example, shutting down coal-fired power plants. They're going away in America. We'll have almost all of them gone by 2030. That took a concerted, focused effort. And it took two things within that effort. One, pointing out the dangers of the coal plants, whether it's conventional pollution or climate change or their bad economics, but also being super clear on robust, affordable, clean alternatives. What happened through that work, and it's not done, but it's very far along, is that the utilities became engines of clean rather than engines of dirty. That that status quo force, that huge force that's evident in every town, every city in America, became significantly our friend and our agent of change rather than our enemy. That job's not done. We have not managed the same with oil or natural gas yet. But what's happened with coal is emblematic of what's possible. Nathan, I want to point out that there's still limited political energy out there for tackling this problem, right? So there is a climate movement now. You know, there are people marching in the streets. There are people chaining themselves to the White House fence and all of that. Uh, But it's still small compared to what it needs to be. We need a much, much larger climate movement than we have in order to overcome all the inertia and the political resistance, uh, the power of the fossils. Uh, but right now, while it's smallish, um, I think Hal and I both think the, the most urgent problem for that movement is not so much stopping fossil fuel projects because we think um, you know the, the, the gain there is minimal. Uh, the urgent priority is to begin to move the demand side of the equation. You know, if we can cut demand for fossil fuels, you know, supply will take care of itself. We don't have to go fight pipeline by pipeline if nobody's buying the stuff anymore, right? And, you know, it's also, it's where we feel like policy has really lagged is, you know, there are just these opportunities uh, at hand already for cutting the demand. And and those opportunities, as we discussed a little earlier, are still um, lying on the ground. You know, people, you know, citizens are not picking them up and using uh, those opportunities. And that's what we think needs to happen. Yeah. So we'll, we'll jump into local governments and how citizens can get involved there. Um, in terms of the climate movement, one of the things we did an episode, or I did an episode with Jonathan Rakoff, who was uh, the former ESG leader at Coinbase. And what's so impressive about the crypto world is their organization and their, you know, maybe that's not necessarily organization politically, but it's organization for tackling on the financial systems. And I think personally that there's a lot that climate activists can learn from crypto and how that they are singularly focused on a goal, but the goal is really a vision. And then that vision applies across all these broad sectors. And so then turning that into either demand side change, which is what crypto really is doing, but there's also the supply side change, which is this idea of Chris James, right? And engine number one. And so I'm curious if either of you have a preference and the book kind of talks about 
individuals aligning their portfolios to ESG uh, oriented index funds. And if that, I, I guess I'd love to understand that a little bit better. And personally, I mean, selfishly is because it's something that I think about and haven't come up with uh, what I'd like to do, but can we talk a little bit about that and, and why you rec- decided to make that recommendation? Well, this is a kind of a messy part of the world. <clears throat> Let me start with engine number one, where they won three seats on the ExxonMobil board of directors. If the engine number one representatives use those to convince Exxon to become more like Orsted, Orsted is the uh, um, the Danish oil company. It used to be called Dong, Danish Oil and Natural Gas. That's become one of the biggest offshore wind installers in the world because they had expertise. And I would rather see Exxon convert to install large-scale capital investments in clean technology than to disappear. The worst of all worlds, though, is for them to continue to spew out misinformation and to use their lobbying prowess to slow down the decarbonization of the economy. So I think that's a radical and interesting move by engine number one. I'm a little shocked, as we all are, that they made it. There's still a minority on the board, and it's not going to be an easy change. Um, but I want to buy, buy a front row seat to watch this one unfold. The more complex question is, what do you do with your own portfolio? Um, and the general feeling is that people should divest from oil and gas. This is the, the divested from tobacco or firearms in the past. And that can create public pressure on the companies that get divested from. Um, but remember, whenever you sell a share of stock, somebody else bought it. You didn't change the capital structure of the company one iota. So if you think that's going to be dispositive, you're fooling yourself. If you think it could be helpful, that it sends a signal to top brass, agree completely. So this this is a means, not an end. And it's not an automatic means to an end. It it requires significant force and significant options along the way. The last thing I'd say on this is ESG, environment, social, and governance, is making big inroads but they're reversible inroads and they're susceptible to green paint. So some companies will do a great job. Some will do an okay job. Some will be completely cynical about the whole process. Yeah. And I don't think uh, we don't really present, uh, you know, people realigning their portfolios as some kind of magic answer, right? It's, it's a limited step. Uh, I mean, all of these are limited steps, right? You know, this is the nature of the problem is we need, you know, a thousand solutions here, a million solutions, all kind of moving us in the right direction. The old cliche is, you know, there is no silver bullet for climate change, only silver buckshot, right? So each of the solutions is is a small part of the whole. It's pretty clear, though, that this... Uh, um, agitation over environmental issues is is it's certainly changing the talk on Wall Street. And I'd like to think in the fullness of time, it will change how Wall Street invests their money. It appears to be the case that uh, the cost of capital for the major oil companies has gone up uh, some. So that tells me there's been a little bit of success from the divestment movement in raising their cost of capital. you know, I mean, it, it probably ultimately hasn't done much to House Point to sort of cut the supply of fossil fuels, but, you know, step in the right direction. We'll be right back with Hal and Justin. 
We'll discuss their thoughts on getting involved in local politics on behalf of the climate, as well as rapid fire questions after the short break. The book covers uh, a number of different histories. Some of my favorite parts are the histories of windmill and solar panels. And I'd like to talk about consumption and change. For power generation, we need to shut down coal plants now, right? Per the math, as Hal was saying. Does that apply similarly to individuals who have existing internal combustion cars, right? And so people who have a fine, well-to-do working car, five, 10 years old, in my case, 240,000 miles, is it go turn that in right now and purchase a new vehicle, keep that consumer engine, uh, that consumer uh, global engine working and personal electric vehicle, or is it wait until the time comes, which for me probably will be 241,000 miles and then go purchase an electric vehicle. It takes about one year to recover uh, one year s- switch from gas to electric to recover the embedded carbon in the new car. So if all you cared about was carbon, you would want to do two things. You'd want to switch to an electric car right away, and you'd want to crush your old car so somebody else doesn't drive it that last 100,000 miles. Now, people obviously care more about than just carbon, and there's a price difference between a new car and an old car, even if on an apples-to-apples basis, they might be pretty similar. That's a tough one. The, the good news there is cars last an average of about 14 years. Um, that means half the cars in the economy, roughly, are about seven years old already. So capital stock turnover will help take care of this so long as we're not selling new internal combustion engine cars. That's the pinch point, selling new internal combustion engine cars. That also gets to the methodology of the book in some way, right? We have to find, we can't do everything. We have to find a small number of things that are hugely important and do them very well. So we need standards and regulations that ultimately prohibit the sale of internal combustion engines uh, in the interim incent the sale of electric vehicles so that the whole new industry gets gets rolling. And we need to do that either at the federal level or the state level with clean car standards. There's, there's no obvious substitute. Trying to pay people to scrap their cars, their old cars, sounds good, but it turns out to be a very expensive and klutzy way to accelerate car turnover. So you have to make these kinds of choices, even though it may not reflect a perfect world that reflects a real world. I mean, related to that point, we, we go pretty big in the book on the idea we, you know, in our cars chapter, we don't start with electric cars. We start with fuel burning cars. And there's a reason for that. Uh, In any world that Hal and I can imagine many, many hundreds of millions more uh, fuel burning cars are likely to be sold. I mean, we are just not at a point where, uh, we can um, fully substitute yet. Uh, in fact, you know, if you if if people were to try to decree tomorrow that you couldn't buy gasoline cars anymore, the electric car industry could not meet the demand, right? I mean, the, you know, we need a something like a forty-fold scale-up uh, in the amount of lithium being produced from lithium mines to meet this, you know, projected twenty-fifty demand for a fully electrified car fleet. So. The reality is we're going to keep selling fuel-burning cars, and therefore, it becomes really important that they meet high standards. And so we talk in the book about you know, the, the uh, efficiency standards, what in the United States are called CAFE standards. They're called uh, by other names elsewhere. But uh, those need to be as tight as possible so that we're at least limiting the, the increase in you know, greenhouse gases that come from 
the, the additional sale of those cars. So, uh, I mean, to return to your question, I think how and I don't really believe in stranding capital early unless it's necessary, it's really necessary, I suppose. Uh, I mean, 240,000 miles on a car might be time to, you know, strand that capital and have it crushed and, you know, uh, go electric if you can. Not everybody's going to be able to. We still have some things to figure out. If you live in an apartment building, if you if you park a car on a street in a city, we have not figured all that out yet, right? So this is a work in progress. 100%. Thankfully, mine's not a daily driver. But you, you read uh, climate activists writing their stories about trying to take a road trip in an electric car. And, and it's evident that we're not clear that uh, clear there. You talked about stranded capital. The book mentions it at the very end a little bit. Bloomberg Green has a, uh, a weekly newsletter called Stranded Assets. Can we just talk about that for people who are not yet familiar with the concept and how it applies in the climate realm? If you were to go build a coal-fired power plant today in the face of horrible economics, increasing health concerns, uh, unpopularity of these behemoths, your shareholders would think you were nuts, you're crazy. They would be upset at you for making such an investment. If you made that same choice five years ago when the writing was on the wall and you're sitting on a $2 billion power plant that's only used up a tenth of its operating life, your shareholders should be plenty pissed as well. Because what you've done is you've stranded their money. You've taken their money, you've put it into a technology that has no function in a carbon-constrained world, and you can't get it back. Why is that important today? When you think of building a natural gas pipeline today or liquefied natural gas import or export terminal today, you're talking about multi-billion dollar commitments. Are you going to get your money back or is it going to be stranded? And if you're an investor with your eyes open, you better think really long and hard about that because in a carbon constrained world, you will not get that money back. That's a stranded investment. Amazing. Um, How? Let's let's rewind the clock back a little bit. Uh, as you called out, you know, you're 17. You have a strong understanding of engineering concepts somehow for passive house, and you all, and that um, that experience turns you on to local policy and local governments. Can you tell me a little bit about what that journey was like, and then for today, what citizens should be doing to get involved with their local governments? Well, that actually got me excited more about national policy than local policy. When you begin to, once you've built a solar building and you realize it's not that hard, you have to start to wonder why don't more people do it? Um, and it takes you into the murky world of institutional habits. You know, we build stick frame buildings in America, we build them really fast. They're all approximately the same as the one right next door. Um, and when people buy them, they're buying them because they like the house, because it's a good school district, because it's a quiet corner, because it's got marble, marble countertops. Nobody buys a house because of its energy, even today. It's number 14 on the list of the top five things you care about. So when I was at college in engineering, we had solar energy labs that confirmed everything I knew already. <laughs> Um, but did it with really sophisticated instrumentation and data logging and, and, and things like that. Um, at the same time, the youngest governor in California's history, a man named Jerry Brown, was holding hearings on building codes in Sacramento. And so I went to those hearings because what could be more exciting? And got to watch as they pieced together using really serious analysis what California's buildings should look like in the future. 
And they did a brilliant job. I mean, I have to say it was government at its best. They used scientists, they used builders, they had economists, they had regulatory experts. They assembled something called Title 24. And Title 24 basically says, you have to make great buildings if you're gonna build in California. And you can either use a cookbook, which I will offer you, which tells you how, what kind of windows to put in where, how thick the insulation needs to be in the walls, what kind of overhangs for the ceiling, or you can build anything you want as long as it meets a performance standard. In other words, you can optimize with a west-facing view in exchange for that, have a super efficient insulation in the rest of the building. So that was one incredible principle, which is performance or cookbook, your choice. But the other incredible principle, which amazingly has not been replicated in every corner of the earth on every topic, is continuous improvement. So they set into motion that every three years, the code would be updated. And anything that paid for itself in about seven years would be rolled into the code automatically. So the bill that was passed when Jerry Brown was the youngest governor in California is still a modern up-to-date law, a regulation, when he was the oldest governor in California's history. And in between, I think there were four governorships. The code got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. But best of all, it created this competitive dynamic amongst the companies because they really wanted to make their, their devices or their material the better in terms of lower energy consumption uh, and cheaper. So it created a performance incentive. Otherwise, I can't get into the buildings. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but it was an inspiring moment for me to watch that unfold. Yeah. Force multiplication, continuous improvement, whatever you want to call it, is an engineer's dream, right? And I completely agree with you in terms of when we think about actions that, uh, you know, you do the action once and then has reverberations downstream, getting something that, uh, yeah, uh, you know, feel free to take it away if you want. Let me relay another anecdote, which is a little later in my work. When the federal government wants to do something big, like a uh, a new air quality standard or new tailpipe standards, They have to go through a process called the Administrative Procedures Act, which requires them to hold public hearings across the country. Who goes to a public hearing on tailpipe emissions in Philadelphia? The answer should be anybody and everybody who cares about climate change. Any mom or dad with an asthmatic kid should be there. Any health worker who deals with asthma should be there. Are they there? No, not as a whole, because they don't know about it, because it's an obscure forum. But by God, this is where the decisions are being made. And so we worked hard to energize public conversation at every one of those hearings the last time this went around. And that meant that instead of only technocrats sitting there, you had the ethical bearing of asthma doctors and parents with asthmatic kids. You had people who lived downstream from a power plant or who put their kids in a filthy school bus every morning. And it changed the dynamics. So the decision was made to have much stronger air quality standards um, because of that focused, precise intervention. And that's, that's empowerment. When somebody does that, A, they win a big battle, and B, they're ready for the next one. It's not the sad futility of just protesting and protesting without understanding who makes the decision and how they make the decision. I'll add to that that this opportunity Hal is describing uh, exists all over this country, you know, essentially uh, on a daily basis. 
Uh, I mean, every city council meeting, every county commission meeting, uh, every public utilities commission meeting of a, in, in a state, uh, decisions are being made to perpetuate the old system. And all of those meetings are an opportunity for citizens to, um, to intervene. Now, you don't want to just throw yourself at it um, thoughtlessly. I mean, you want to sign up. But, you know, for the mailing list from the groups that are trying to monitor this situation and, you know, get on the CR Club mailing list. Uh, they exist um, in just about every, every big state. But, you know, people do have a voice. People have a democratic voice if they choose to exercise it. And that's what needs to happen here in a much bigger way than it has been happening. Right. Especially true for people who, instead of going out to the bars in college, choose to go to Sacramento to listen to hearings and get inspired. Right. But for everyone else as well, too. I think it's this um, Dr. Yana Elizabeth Johnson. Um, she says this and, and I've abused it on the show, but I think it's so true, which is that, you know, it's a combination of what are you good at? What brings you joy and what does the world need? And if that's going to hearings in Sacramento, go do that. Right. If that's promoting um, uh, zero waste, even though it might not be the most effective thing, but if it's the gateway drug for other people to get into climate activism, fantastic. In the book ends. Oh yeah, go ahead, please. In my defense, I had my share of beers. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Although I was, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe we'll unpack that on episode 2.0. Um, some good stories there about talking about climate. The book ends with this idea of um, repairing the world or tikkun olam in Hebrew. And um, as a Jewish person, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it, it touched my soul for sure. And um, you mentioned Pirkei Avot and Rabbi Tarfon, and it, it, it's, it's such a special idea in Judaism, especially for someone like me who grew up Orthodox and observant and now have a more secular way of viewing the world. This is a very Jewish ideal that I can apply to both my secular, um, my secular identity too. How did this come to be the way in which you decided to close the book? How did it? That's a good question. Uh, I guess this was my intervention, right? We, we went around about exactly how to close it. And uh, I, I don't know, I'd had, I mean, you're talking to a, you know, a Gentile here sort of raised in a, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, what you might call a nativist Southern church, uh, uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, but as a college student, I learned about Tikkun Olam and um, it just struck me as such a noble thing, right? And I, I suppose every religion has some version of that, right? You know, I mean, some version of the idea that, you know, part of your duty is to go out and sort of heal the world. And, you know, if you're Catholic, it, it's not supposed to matter if the poor person lying in the street is Catholic or not, right? It's a duty to the world at large, to society at large. But Tikkun Olam and the sort of Jewish formulation of this idea just always struck me as uh, sort of the most elegant, uh, you know, expression of the of the idea. And, uh, you know, what clenched for me the decision to use it was actually, and we quote this in the, in the closing of the book, Sammy Roth, you know, at the LA Times, you know, the best reporter on the climate beat, uh, climate energy beat right now in the United States, put it in one of his newsletters. And, you know, it was, it was, it was amidst all the fires in California. And he was sort of wrestling uh, in this newsletter with the idea of climate despair. And what particularly struck me about it was the quote from Rabbi Tarfan, where he says, uh, 
you, you know, you're, you're not obligated to complete the work, right? It's, you're not held to a standard of you must personally uh, perfect the world and you're not done until you do, but that doesn't mean you get to abstain from it, right? And so it's such a perfect, I think, expression of sentiment for the climate problem because none of us are going to live to complete this work. I mean, this is a, a multi-generational, uh, you know, human enterprise of cleaning up our economy. Hal and I will be long gone, you know, before right before the last, uh, you know, pound of coal is burned in the world. Um, sad to say, and and so. Uh, you know, the, I'd already been thinking about maybe Tukanolam is the window we want to go through here at the end. And then, you know, Sammy's newsletter popped up that day and I thought, bang, you know, cause I had, I, I, I vaguely maybe heard the Rabbi Tarfan quote before, but I hadn't seen a citation to it. I didn't know where it came from. And so I learned that from Sammy's newsletter and went back and dug it up and, and lo and behold, there you have it. Well, I'm thankful you did wrap it up with a few more questions, mostly about kind of both, both of you and how you personally view the world. You mentioned that, you know, coal is kind of this thing that everyone knows that needs to change. And, uh, we, you know, it might be a long time until we get there. But in a world where climate is solved, or you decide not to work on climate for either for for another reason, how do the two of you spend your time? I have too many hobbies. So I do a lot of word work and mountain biking and make wine and uh, some aviation as well. So this and that, plus three kids to chase around the universe. Nice. A true Marin Countier. Justin, what about you? Uh, what do I do? I, I read a lot. I read a lot of World War II history. He's rumored I to be a gourmet cook, but he hasn't substantiated that rumor yet in my presence you never you never you never invited me uh i do cook um uh let's see right now i'm I, seriously i do i spend a huge amount of my time reading i'm i'm reading the volker ulrich two volume biography of hitler i thought i'd never read another adolf hitler biography and this thing is such a masterpiece that i you know i finally was persuaded um uh to dive in so I'm like Hal. I have quite a few hobbies. I'm also a pretty serious um, audiophile, not the kind that can afford to spend $50,000 on a stereo system, but uh, I do spend a lot of money on headphones and things like that. And, you know, curating a, you know, lossless digital music collection, for example, such like that. And I have three nieces and nephews that I really like. So I try to spend time with them, although this book has kept me away from them more than I would have liked. Sounds like Hal owes you a few extra bottles of wine. He does. Who, for for the two of you individually, when you think of sustainability superheroes, you know, feel free to say yourselves, but besides yourselves, who comes to mind? I'm going to offer two. Edward Abbey, the great writer. And my mom, who with two friends spent 40 years climbing every peak and valley in a 50-mile radius of... Aspen, Colorado, drafted four wilderness bills, got each of them passed, and now permanently protect half a million acres of glorious land. I want to say that Al Gore is a pretty big hero of mine. Um, you know, 
after losing that election, he could have just sort of slunk off and made a lot of money. He did, in fact, make a lot of money, you know, being on the boards of companies, I think, uh, first Google and then Apple. Um, uh, but, you know, the man picked himself up and threw, threw himself into this problem, right? And, you know, made a slideshow and went around and started explaining the problem to people. And um, of all the people I know who've... Um, sort of move this needle at all, you know, who made any kind of difference, I'd have to put him up near the top. So, um, uh, you know, I mean, this would be a long list, right? If you wanted to, uh, I mean, Tom Lovejoy, who died, you know, within the past year was, um, I think, a hero to both me and Hal. This was, one, this was maybe the most tropic, most knowledgeable tropical biologist uh, in the world and just a, a giant figure in, um, trying to get, you know, attention paid to the problem of deforestation and so forth. So, um, E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson. Who, who also died fairly recently, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. This was, this is the ant guy at Harvard who was also, you know, great, great thinker about sustainability. I would strongly recommend to your listeners, Ed Wilson's, I think it was his last book. It's called Half Earth. Uh, and it's about how we need to, uh, you know, withdraw from at least half the land on the planet and turn it back over to nature if we want to sort of um, salvage a, a livable biosphere. Yeah. You know, one thing that I got from your book, which I haven't gotten from other climate books, was a sense of urgency. So not our only are you, do you provide that engineering lens of how to tackle the problem, but it has that narrative tone. It has that narrative voice of the sense of urgency. And that's something that Al Gore's uh, productions give me as well, but not every, not every climate book has it, although it should. I mean, this is nothing but urgency. I mean, urgency is the whole problem here. <laughs> you know, we've got 20, 28 years now to get to net zero if we're going to meet our own goals that we say we want to meet. And you know, when you look around the world, does it feel like we're on a track to get to zero in 28 years? I mean, I don't think so. So, um, yeah, urgency is the name of the game. Can I mention one more thing about the book that we didn't raise? Yeah, of course. And this is credit to Justin. The book tells stories. Every chapter has stories about what happened and how it happened and why it happened and what were the forces involved. Uh, very deeply reported by Justin. And in my mind, the one of the models for this book was that book called Salt that came out years ago, which told the history of salt in such a compelling way. It was a page turner. And I think this book reads, I know this book reads very easily because I've shared it with a bunch of people. It's, it's interesting. It's intriguing. It's not a diatribe. It's not a treatise. It's a set of stories that elucidate what we're trying to get in, get, get across. One of the things that the you, you just, Justin, you just mentioned net zero. And one of the things I noticed in the book is that net zero doesn't come up until I think it's page 225, which is very much towards the end. And I was curious if that's intentional, if the focus was on zero and at the very end, kind of this allowance of the net portion of it. I mean, we went into this with a philosophy that sort of waving numbers around at people accomplishes basically nothing. Uh, I mean, you can find lots of other books that will do the math for you and say, gee, if we want to meet this goal of, of you know, stopping emissions by 2050 or 2060, here's, here's what we have to cut where. 
And um, my reaction to that, and I think Hal bought it when we were talking early on, is we're not even going in the right direction yet. You know, emissions are still going up. They're not going down. If emissions are still going up, how much time do we want to spend to people saying, uh, gee, maybe we could take this path over here and they would go down this amount, or maybe we could take that path over there. I just don't. And, and plus, these the large numbers, when you start talking about sort of, I mean, th- this is the other thing you won't find, um, certainly not early in the book and maybe nowhere in the book, is uh, you find very little about, you know, gigatons of emissions, for example, or billions of tons. We do talk percentages a little bit. So we tell you what percentage of American emissions are coming from the electric grid, for example. We, we do lay out things like that. But uh, I just think sort of the large numbers are meaningless to people. And so the book is a conscious decision, made, made conscious decisions to um, eschew large numbers, uh, to eschew a lot of um, discussion of potential pathways in favor of saying to people, here's how you can make a difference. You know, here's how you can help us turn this in the right direction so that finally we're going down, not up. It's really that simple. Hal, Justin, thank you so much. Um, I've had a great time. I'm hopeful you both as well. For people who want to go find out more, one, they should go watch Hal, your Stanford Energy Lecture. Uh, The more recent one is one of my favorite YouTube videos. Um, Any of Justin's opinion pieces in the New York Times are fantastic as well. How should people follow your work? Obviously, they should go read The Big Fix. Um, Twitter, LinkedIn, do you have any preferred methods of, um, of influencing your followers? I'm on Twitter quite a bit. So, yeah, that, whenever I see new work that I think is interesting, that's where I tend to call it out. So, and it's at Justin H. Gillis if people want to give me a follow. And my Twitter handle is Hal underscore Harvey. Hal, Justin, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks again to Hal and Justin for joining us today. You can connect with Justin on Twitter at Justin H. Gillis, J-U-S-T-I-N-H, as in H, Gillis, G-I-L-L-I-S, and Hal also on Twitter at Hal Harvey, H-A-L underscore H-A-R-B-E-Y. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant as investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify too. Subscribe and follow on Spotify and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee and this is The Net Zero Life.